Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. This week, I'll be reviewing Chapter 2, but first, I wanted to give a shout-out and a thank you to everyone who has listened to the first episode and left me a review on iTunes. An even bigger thank you to everyone who decided to return this week and join me as I continue my journey. So really quick, uh, being a constant reader, I'm always on the lookout for updates and news about Stephen King, um, whether it's a new adaptation or a new novel. And by now, I'm sure we all know we're getting a new novel in September called The Institute. Well, lately, um, not even lately, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, King confirmed that he will have another new novel out in 2020 called If It Bleeds. And If It Bleeds is going to feature Holly Gibney, who we all know from the Mercedes trilogy, as well as last year's novel, The Outsider. And If It Bleeds, It Leads. That's a phrase that's generally used by the media um, to showcase uh, stories of violence and tragedy to get ratings. So I can only imagine what King is going to do with that kind of concept, and I'm really excited. I know Holly Gibney is one of those characters that um, I've heard differing opinions from King fans about how they feel about her. So personally, I'm excited to see her uh, in a new book and one that will be revolving around her character. Um, and I've also read that we will also see more of Jerome from the Mercedes trilogy. So that's kind of exciting. And also New Line Cinema is finally bringing The Long Walk to life. They've hired a director, uh, Andre Uverdal. And I really hope I didn't butcher that last name, but I probably did. Um, he is mo- most recently, he'll be directing the scary stories to tell in the dark that is coming out, I think, in August. And I'm really excited about that. So this this made me very, very excited to see that he is going to bring um, King's dystopian novel to life. Uh, the Long Walk is in my top five King stories of all time. Um I guess technically it's a Bachman novel, but come on. So uh, I read this last year for the first time, and The Long Walk just stuck with me for days and days and days after I had finished reading it. Um, It's such a simple premise, uh, but there's so much tension and psychological horror, and I love that we don't get a lot of insight into the world. Uh, We don't see anything supernatural. It's just... Uh, uh, I can't even describe it properly. It's haunting in so many ways, and I'm really excited. I think the Long Walk adaptation is probably the adaptation that I am most excited about, um, obviously, other than the Stand series. So we have that to look forward to. And then, uh, you know, I could probably go on for an hour about all of the King news, but the third one I'm excited about is The Eyes of the Dragon is now in development at Hulu to be a series. And it's going to be run by Seth Graham Smith, who wrote and uh, he wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and the Lego Batman movie. And I don't know if this is supposed to be Hulu's answer to Game of Thrones, uh, probably a bit more tame. But uh, I'm really excited to see uh, what they're going to do with The Eyes of the Dragon um, on Hulu. So we have that to look forward to, as well as, you know, season two of Castle Rock is going to be um, in production soon, too. So 
we just it's King remains a hot commodity in Hollywood. Um, and I'm thinking that we're going to be getting a lot more adaptations um, as these ones continue to be successful, at least uh, at the box office or ratings wise. You know, they're not always the best critically, um, but uh, as long as I think uh, they continue to succeed, they're going to be made. And I'm actually going to ask you listeners a question, and I want to know if there is a novel or short story that you want to see adapted from King's works. Uh, it could be a novella. Um, maybe give me something obscure. Give me something that's not uh, – don't say Carrie. I mean, how many Carries have we gotten so far in Salem's Lot? I know that you know James Wan has an adaptation coming out for that, which, yes, I'm excited about. But I want to see something um, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Um, he's got so many wonderful stories uh, that could be developed into a television series or a movie. Um, personally, I mean, I know Needful Things uh, was a movie, I think, uh, 1993 at, at Harris. But I want to see Needful Things as like a 10-episode limited series on HBO or Netflix or something, CBS All Access maybe. Um, I think that novel would work so beautifully as a series. Um, and you can't fit that novel into two hours. It's just impossible to capture uh, everything that all the horror and tension and build up that King uh, managed to create in Needful Things uh, in Castle Rock. So um, that's my choice. Uh, so if you have one that you want to tell me about, um, send that to me. You can you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or follow me on social media. Uh, drop me a line there. That'd be great too. And so I've rambled on a little bit about the King works that uh, I'm excited about. So we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter two of The Stand. And real quick, somebody asked me uh, last week if it was safe to listen to this podcast if they had never read The Stand before. And to that, I say the answer is yes. I won't be revealing any spoilers for the novel uh, beyond what we've already read in each chapter. So ideally, you've already read the chapter I'm about to review. Um, that's the only time I'm going to tell you to not listen because I go into a deep uh, summary and synopsis of the chapter and I kind of talk about how I feel about it. So if you haven't read chapter two, uh, do not listen to this episode. Um, if you have read The Stand, then you're perfectly fine, obviously. If you haven't read The Stand, though, I really see no... I, I guess there's a possibility that I might spoil something in the future, but it's it's... One of those things that I will give you ample warning to skip ahead. I don't see those moments happening frequently at all. Um, I'm trying to go about the podcast as if I've never read this book before and we're on this journey for the first time together. Um, so you should be safe if you have not yet read the entire novel. I briefly considered um, doing two chapters a week instead of one. But uh, I know some of the chapters are shorter, but you know what? If, if the episode is a little bit shorter than the first, I am totally fine with that. Hopefully you guys are too. Um, I just like, I think there's just something fascinating in every chapter, regardless of how long it is. And I want to be able to talk about it um, without rambling on for too long. Um, so hopefully that's all right with you guys. We're going to stick to one chapter a week. And this week we will be uh, diving into chapter two and meeting Fran Goldsmith. Um, a really quick recap of what we read last week. 
In the prologue, we met Charlie Campion, a security guard at a biological weapons facility in California. And Charlie's in a hurry to get his wife, Sally, and their baby daughter, baby LaVon. Um, I guess she's not a baby. She's three years old. But anyway, technicality there. Uh, baby LaVon off the Army base where he works. Something has happened in the facility, something that killed everybody inside, and he managed to escape uh, the lockdown, and now he's determined to get his family out of there. He's decided to drive east since the wind is blowing west, and he's begun to cough steadily as they finally drive off. This led us to Arnette, a small struggling town in Texas where we met Stu Redman at Hapscombe's Texaco. Stu is described as the quietest man in Arnett, and he's there with five other men, including Hapscombe's owner, Bill Hapscombe, who they all call Hap. And they're drinking, they're drinking beer, discussing money, you know, kind of shooting the shit, excuse my language, uh, when Charlie's Chevy crashes into the pumps. And Stu and the others find Charlie's wife and uh, daughter in the passenger seat, and they're both dead. And Charlie is very sick and delusional, uh, and he dies in the ambulance on its way to the hospital. So chapter two, we journey from Arnett, Texas, to a beach in Agunquit, Maine. And it's here that we meet Fran Goldsmith, Francis, Franny. Um, for the sake of the podcast, I'm going to try and just stick to Franny. Um, and she's meeting her boyfriend, Jess Ryder, on the Rock Pier. Uh, we get a sense that a gunquit is gearing up for tourist season. The parking lots will soon, soon be full of out-of-state license plates. The marinas and motels uh, will be full throughout the summer. But right now, at the beginning of June, the lot is full of mostly residential cars, including Fran's. Uh, Jess is waiting for her on the pier. And from Fran's point of view, uh, she sees him as a silhouette in the afternoon sunlight with seagulls flying above him. He is a New England portrait drawn in real life. And we get a sense of who Fran is from this first quick paragraph. Uh, we also get a sense of who Jess is, at least from Fran's point of view, uh, because she also laments that no goal, no seagull would dare spoil the view by, quote, dropping a splat of white doo-doo on Jess Ryder's immaculate blue chambray work shirt. After all, he was a practicing poet. We already get the feeling that Jess takes himself quite seriously, and Fran does not. Uh, we soon discover quickly after that that she is pregnant. And she and Jess conceived the baby, or the lump as Fran calls it, on that very beach. Uh, we didn't get a lot of we did get a lot of description of Stu Redman from chapter one, um, but we do get an idea Fran looks like. Uh, King describes her as, she was a tall girl with chestnut hair that fell halfway down the back of the buff-colored shift she was wearing. Good figure. Long legs that got appreciative glances. Prime stuff was the correct frat house term, she believed. Looky, 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 here comes Nookie. Miss College Girl 1990. As Fran is approaching Jess on the pier, she likens this moment to the Scarlet Letter. Hester Prynne bringing the news of Pearl's conception to Reverend Dimsdale. But Jess is no Dimsdale. He's a college student, an undergrad, an undergrad who thinks himself to be a poet. Jess is toss, tossing rocks off the pier, and Fran believes that he knows exactly what he looks like in that moment. He's lonely but unafraid like Lord Byron, an exile surveying the sea. 
And she realizes in that moment that she's she feels bad because she's creating a caricature out of the boy that she assumes that she loves. But there is some doubt to Fran's feelings for Jess here. She feels bad about making fun of him, but she's also trying to deal with the thought that maybe her feelings for him have changed since discovering um, she was pregnant. A part of her blames Jess for her condition, uh, obviously. But, you know, Fran is self-aware enough to understand that it takes two and that her birth control just, it failed. So either she had been giving a bad batch of the pill or she simply forgot to take a pill and forgot that she forgot to take a pill. And honestly, that's probably the most likely scenario. So here Frank comes up beside or behind Jess and she touches him, which catches him off guard. Uh, he, he nearly falls into the water and Fran just finds this to be hilarious. Uh, Jess is less amused. He yells at her for scaring him. And when he takes a step toward her, uh, Fran trips and falls down, violently biting into her tongue. Jess's ire turns to concern, but there's not much he can do for her. He can't do much for her here. Uh, he pulls out a handkerchief, but um, you don't want to really shove your handkerchief in your girlfriend's mouth. <laughs> so uh, Fran needs to spit out the blood and she instructs Jess to look the other way since she's going to be unladylike. And I found that particular sentence, you know, it could be just a throwaway line, like, don't look at me. But coming from Fran, who um, is 21 years old and pregnant, um, being afraid that her boyfriend will see her be unladylike by spitting out blood from a bitten tongue. Uh, I don't know if that says a lot about Fran or her upbringing, but I'm I'm sure we're going to find out. And once she clears out her mouth, um, she asks him to take her for ice cream. And they start to walk back to her car, and they have a very casual back and forth about her tongue. But uh, in the middle of this, Fran abruptly tells Jess that she is pregnant. And he, of course, thinks she's joking. Uh, but no, she is. This is not a joke. So here we get a very brief insight into Jess and Fran's relationship um, prior to the pregnancy news. Uh, Jess Ryder is a wannabe poet. He clearly takes himself quite seriously. Uh, he has dark hair and glasses. Uh, but it, it's difficult to really envision how Fran felt about him before she got pregnant. Um, how long had they been together? Uh, she lost her virginity to him, but that, you know, on the beach, but that doesn't really give you an idea um, if they've been in a long-term re long-term relationship or if this is something that has been happening uh, since the end of school, you know. So she is very, she comes across as very spirited. She has a kind of a strange sense of humor. Um, she feels the need to giggle at inappropriate moments. And he seems very subdued, um, almost like being reserved as part of his poet persona. And I, I can't help but wonder what she saw in him. Um, maybe at some point the poet thing, you know, uh, was attractive. But now you can see that she's kind of trying to figure this out, um, how she feels now that they're in this position where this pregnancy could tie them together for the rest of their lives. So at the Dairy Queen, um, they're in Fran's car and Jess has a Coke and Fran is eating a banana boat supreme. And their conversation is awkward and stilted. And Fran's just trying to make small talk uh, to keep her emotions in check. And it doesn't really work because she starts to cry. Um, but here Jess comforts her again. And uh, she decides she's not hungry after all. And, you know, Jess takes her ice cream to get out of the car and go throw it away. And this is one of my favorite moments of Chapter 2. And Fran is making an observation 
that Jess is walking funny. And it says, as if he had been hit hard down low where it hurts boys. In a way, she supposed that's just where he had been hit. But if you want to look at it another way, well, that was just about the way she had walked after he had taken her virginity on the beach. She had felt like she had a bad case of diaper rash, only diaper rash didn't make you preggers. When Jess returns to the car, he asks uh, the question every guy seems to have to ask when given this kind of news. How did it happen? Um, I can't blame Fran here for responding quite sarcastically with a few options. And, you know, Jess doesn't quite understand why she's so angry about it. But Fran has imagined this scene in her head many times since she realized uh, she was pregnant. And, you know, she thinks to herself that it never went like this. And I think that we can all kind of relate to that moment uh, where you have these expectations for how something will go. And then you're completely blindsided when reality just doesn't cooperate. So Jess seems to understand that he messed up, even if he's not sure why she's angry. Um, And he assures her that he will not run out on her, uh, as if, you know, maybe that's what's been on her mind. And while it softens Fran a little, um, we see a moment here where maybe things could be okay. There's that one moment. um, It says, quote, at this moment, she could have plucked one of his hands off the wheel, held it and healed the breach entirely, but she couldn't make herself do it. He had no business wanting to be comforted, no matter how tactic or unconscious his wanting was. She suddenly realized that one way or another, the laughs and the good times were over for a while. And this particular moment really struck me because there's there's always that one moment where you know that if you just swallow your pride and reach out to the other person, that maybe you can bridge the gap. But the moment almost always passes before you can do anything. And I don't I don't see this as Fran being stubborn. Um, we know she doesn't want the conversation to go this way. But at the same time, she sees Jess as thinking he is the one who needs to be comforted. He needs to be coddled. He wants her to tell him that everything will be okay when really it, it could, should kind of be the other way around. And Fran wants to cry again, but she refuses. At this point, she's she is being stubborn because she is not going to be vulnerable to Jess again. And here Jess asks her once what what she wants to do. And like every couple, I don't know, what do you want to do? <laughs> so when she, you know, she lobs that question back at him and he responds with, quote, oh, hell. And this is not the right response. Um, Fran very stoically begins to list off every possible option for them. And this begins to irritate Jess. He believes she's doing it to purposely aggravate him. And, you know, Fran admits that this is true. Um but he finally admits that uh, to her that he doesn't think this is his fault at all. Obviously, you know, she she told him she was on the pill. And again, yes, this is true, but it doesn't change the fact that it happened. Neither of them seem to know what to do. Uh, Fran has outlined the option, sarcastically offering up suicide as well, although she's not really considering it uh, at that point. And just decides they should get married. And you know, Fran did give him this option. This was one of the options she tossed at him earlier. But when he decides on marriage, she immediately turns him down. She does not want to marry Jess. Uh, When his face kind of crumples in disappointment, she has to 
almost bite her sore tongue to keep from giggling at the sight of him. And he finally says that she doesn't love him. Uh, Fran, and this is my favorite line of the whole chapter two, Fran says that love and marriage are mutually exclusive states and to pick another choice. She wants him to choose something else. And Jess finally decides that, you know what? No, she doesn't want to talk about this. She just wants to score points off of him. And she can admit that that's probably true. Um, but she continues to pressure him to decide something. And Jess finally tells her that he needs time to think. And she finally agrees with that. She will take him back to his bike at the parking lot by the beach and she'll go and run her errands. Jess seems very taken aback by this. Um He has biked all the way from Portland and got a motel room where he expected them to spend the weekend together. Uh, Fran informs him that things have changed, uh, obviously, with this pregnancy, but he can get in touch with her when he's thought about things some more. And I don't see this as being um, unreasonable. I think that it's kind of silly for Jess to think that just because he came from Portland to get a motel room that she would essentially sleep with him, um, even especially after giving him such life-changing news and being obviously upset about it, even if he doesn't truly recognize why she's upset or that she's even upset at all. Um, He is a little annoyed and he tells her, this moment is where things seem to permanently change between them. Jess tells her to stop riding him. And this is where Fran finally loses her temper. She snarks at him that he rode her and just slaps her in response. He immediately apologizes. Uh, Fran immediately accepts, but you know that the damage is done. Back at the parking lot, uh, Jess apologizes again for hitting her, uh, but he says he'll stay the night in the motel. And if it's what she wants to do, he will scrape up enough cash for an abortion. Uh, Jess wants her to call him. And here, Fran is not herself. She, she seems very detached from this conversation. Uh, Jess tells her that he loves her, but she doesn't believe him. And she doesn't tell him that because she feels like she owes it to him to just accept it. But deep down, she knows that he does not love her and she does not love him. And she can't even promise that she will call him. Uh, She drives away from Jess uh, feeling very sad. And she's wondering if she'll ever be able to look at the ocean the same way again. So, okay, so it's very obvious to me from this chapter that Fran and Jess were never the kind of couple to make it long term. Um, It's very possible that Fran did love Jess at some point. Um, We don't know exactly what kind of love that was. uh, But she viewed him differently uh, before the pregnancy. And who knows, maybe it's the pregnancy that just helped her realize that she doesn't actually love him and she doesn't want to get married. She's not giving him um, credit to Jess. She's not really giving him any insight into where her head is really at. And we're not getting a lot of insight into where her head is at. You know, she's pushing him to make a choice um, and then resisting it when he does. But we don't know what she wants to do either. Um, As the reader, she's just trying to get Jess to make the decision. Um, And he is. And she does. She's not going along with it. I think that maybe she's trying to talk herself into realizing that she wants to make this choice on her own, um, that Jess is not going to be there for her. Jess is not going to be the kind of guy that she needs in her life, pregnant or not. 
Um, you know, she says in earlier in the chapter that she, this isn't how she imagined the conversation to go, but we also never get a full vision of exactly how she wanted the conversation to go. So can't really blame Jess really much for not responding the way she wanted to. Um, these kind of conversations are not perfect. Uh, nothing is ever going to be easy, um, especially for two 20-year-olds. Uh, Jess is 20 and Fran is 21. And they have their whole lives ahead of them. But now things are different. Um, we don't know a whole lot about Fran's upbringing. We don't know who her family is just yet. Uh, we do get mentioned of her father. His name is Peter Goldsmith, but that's it. Um, we know that she giggles at inappropriate moments and that she has flashes of temper when her patience has run thin. And Jess just seems to be clueless, trying to pass off blame getting annoyed with her, uh, assuming she would stay in his motel room all weekend despite the situation. Um, and Fran is just trying to mask her fear by being flippant and just doesn't seem to recognize that that's what she's doing and that she's just scared. Um, personally, I I feel very protective of Fran Goldsmith, and I don't think Jess Ryder deserves her. <laughs> so um, I'm curious to see... Uh, what happens to Fran here. And I'm curious to see what happens to Jess. Uh, at the end of this chapter, things are up in the air. Uh, she has not made a decision. She hasn't made a decision about the baby or Jess. Um, but we kind of get the feeling just from how this entire chapter went that they are probably not going to work out. It's also going to be a rather complicated situation. Uh, Franny being pregnant as a deadly super flu is on the loose and starting to make itself known uh, in a small southern town in Texas. And speaking of which, next week um, we will be returning to Arnett, Texas to check in with some of the men who witnessed Charles Campion's wreck and death at Hapscombe's Texaco. So that's it for this episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. If you have any thoughts on the first two chapters of The Stand or you've already read ahead um, and you want to send me your thoughts on chapter three, um, you can drop me a line at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or hit me up on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Circle Opens. I always love to talk about King with other constant readers, and I would love to hear your thoughts. And if you want to share them, I would love to read them on next week's episode. So that's it for this episode. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. <laughs>